Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 107, Thomas Decker, Gulls, Galants and the London Playhouse. Last time, I gave you a flavour of the variety of plays performed at the Rose Theatre, thanks to the details preserved in Henslow's diary. One point that I mentioned before about the diary but didn't reiterate last time is that some of its authenticity was, for a time, believed to be questionable. The first editor of the manuscript after its rediscovery in the Dulwich College papers, John Payne Collier, was not only a notable Shakespeare scholar of his day, but a forger of documents as well. He published an edition of the Second Folio of Shakespeare, which, he claimed, included notes and amendments written in the margins by an old corrector. These additions and corrections, when examined by other scholars, were proven to be modern editions, and all of Payne Collier's work was thrown into doubt. And this wasn't the only work that he interfered with. It was proved that he had inserted Shakespeare's name into one of the papers he had been given access to by the masters of Dulwich College. Such forgery and intervention, with original documents, might have been less worrisome a century earlier. But by the mid-1800s, scholarship, and Shakespeare's scholarship in particular, was being taken very much more seriously. As a serious scholar, Payne Collier was closely entwined with many of the British literary and historic institutions of the time, the Shakespeare Society and the British Museum being not least amongst them. So his exposure as an untrustworthy scholar was keenly felt. However, as far as Henslow's diary is concerned, the original manuscript is still extant and therefore available for study and much studied it has been since its discovery in the Allen Papers. These days, you can even see it digitised and analysed online. So, there is a general consensus about the authenticity of the document as a historic record. I've already used reference to the diary on several occasions in this podcast, and there will no doubt be more useful information from it for future use. It certainly plays its part in this episode and in the next, because now we are moving on to look at the life and plays of Thomas Decker. He enjoyed a long life, almost 60 years, and despite some personal troubles, he was active and prolific for the majority of those years. Years that span the most glorious years of the Elizabethan and Jacobean theatre. He is one of the lesser remembered playwrights now, but one of the hardest working playwrights of his day, at a time when there was a lot of competition for that title. But it is also through his literary prose work that he tells us something of Elizabethan London and the London Playhouses. So I've split his story over two episodes. Today, I'm going to start his life story and look at his view of the London Playhouses through some extensive quotes from his prose work, and then next time, I'll be digging into his plays and concluding his life story. As I mentioned last time, Henslow's diary doesn't only give details of the plays performed and the box office takings received from Londoners eager for theatrical entertainment, but many other notes on the day-to-day running of the Rose Playhouse and Henslow's financial commitments. Something he did quite frequently was to lend money to his actors and playwrights for a variety of reasons, to allow them to purchase costumes or complete or amend work in progress, even to allow them to acquire books for source material are common examples. He was clearly a man who believed in investing in the talent that made his theatre work, 
and it seems to me that he was a risk-taker in order to advance the success of his playhouse. One of the people that he notes lending money to, in this case on more than one occasion, is the playwright and author Thomas Decker. Decker was no doubt very grateful for Henslow's support, because he was, quite clearly, something of a risky investment. We don't know much for certain about Decker's early life, but his birth, probably in 1572 in London, and, given his surname, probably to a family of Dutch extraction, followed by a good grammar school education but no university attendance, much like Thomas Kidd, seems pretty certain. In his working life, Decker fell into the hack-writer category, but that was through character and necessity rather than any lack of talent. He combined that talent with good Latin, which supports the idea of a good education to at least grammar school level, and a quick wit that he used in satiric writings and stage comedies. He's first mentioned explicitly in theatre circles in 1598, so aged about 25, but there are plays produced as early as 1594 that are associated with his name as a collaborator, so possibly he started in the theatre very young. But that reference might be as a later reviser of the scripts rather than as an originator. At the turn of the century, he's listed, along with Johnson, Shakespeare and others, as our best for tragedy. So it seems likely, in fact, that he had been working at play scripts for some time and was already well known by then. From the records pieced together, we can say that from at least 1598 to 1602, he contributed to work performed by the Admiral's men, and in 1602 he was writing for both the Earl of Worcester's men and the Lord Chamberlain's men. He then returned to the Lord Admiral's men in 1604, by then known as Prince Henry's men, but he also worked for other troops at the same time. More of all of that for next time, but for now I want to jump to 1603, when he produced his first pamphlet. This was The Wonderful Year, where wonderful means astonishing rather than being ironic, because this is an account of the effect of the plague in London. It has lasting significance not just in its own right, but because it was a major source for Daniel Defoe for his Journal of the Plague Year, written in 1722. Decker's original work also includes an account of the death of Elizabeth and the effect that this had on the country, and an account of the accession of James I. Decker eulogises the late Queen and describes how the country fell into a collective mourning as her death took away hearts from millions. Clearly, with an eye to the future, as much as he laments the passing of the Elizabethan Golden Age, he describes how the country is happy for wholesome receipt of a proclaimed king, and how the presence of James in the country has stemmed the grief over the loss of Elizabeth. The accession of James and his triumphal arrival into the capital was not as glorious as he might have hoped for. He had to delay his arrival into London and his coronation thanks to a particularly vicious return of the plague that year. Decker describes the horror of the number of the dead bodies doubling between morning and night, and the great levelling of all men and women, regardless of their status in society, in the face of the infection. The inference is that Decker stayed in London that year when many associated with the theatre left for the relative safety of the touring life. He comments that the fight to avoid almost inevitable death made fools of everyone. But he was one of the few who did survive. 
He found the horrors of that year a form of inspiration. Perhaps writing the memories down was cathartic for him. He wrote several more pamphlets on the subject before turning to politics and religion with an anti-Catholic tract written in the aftermath of the gunpowder plot in 1606. He also wrote a continuation of Thomas Nash's Pierce Penniless. The Bellman of London, or to give it its full title, The Bellman of London, bringing to light the most notorious villainies that are now practised in the kingdom. Profitable for gentlemen, lawyers, merchants, citizens, farmers, masters of households and all sorts of servants to mark, and delightful for men to read. Was the first in a series of pamphlets, known as the Coney Catching Pamphlets, which Decker wrote to expose the scams of the London criminals and conmen. He describes a range of idle vagabonds in England, including rogues, mid-rogues, counterfeit cranks, freighters and Abraham men, and the tricks of their illicit trades. Decker certainly sensationalises the criminal elements and the poverty, a trait not uncommon in the writings of the time. But although satiric in nature, it's thought to be largely based on the true circumstances of those at the lower end of life in London. Decker's description of the watchman can be seen as reflected in the parody of that trade in Much Ado About Nothing, and the Abraham men mentioned there was a type of aggressive beggar who typically stripped half-naked, behaved like a mad person and claimed to be recently released from Bedlam, more properly called St Mary Bethlehem Hospital, London's hospital for the insane since 1337, hoping to be paid off to go away. Now does that sound familiar? If so, then you're remembering Edgar and his encounter on the moor with King Lear. Many interpretations have been put on Edgar's transformation, some psychological, some political and social, some sentimental. But what we miss now is that the contemporary audience may well have primarily recognised Edgar's state as that of a beggar and a conman. They were presumably a lot less empathetic to Edgar's condition than we might be now, recognising him as something that generated a reaction of fear rather than pity. In all, Decker wrote 20 prose pamphlets, many focusing on life in London amongst the lower classes, and his knowledge of them has caused speculation that his recorded times in prison for debt were not the only spells of detention, and that he spent rather too much of his time in the seedier haunts of the city. He often revised and updated his pamphlets, and they proved popular reading. One of them is of particular interest to the history of theatre of his time. The Gull's Handbook, published in 1609, is one of the pamphlets that documents the darker side of Elizabethan city living. The Gull of the title is the conman's mark, the thief's victim, the unsuspecting tourist, the out-of-town visitor or city resident who lets down his guard for a moment and falls victim to the unscrupulous professional thieves and conmen who, according to Decker, roam the city from end to end. It is a playful and ironic take on what to look out for while in search of pleasure in the city, and includes useful advice like how to avoid the watchman, how to behave in a tavern, how to dress and when to go naked, and it includes a chapter on behaviour in the playhouse. Decker's advice is comic in its intent, and gives some bad advice in the form of a type of primer that was popular at the time but it does give us some insight into how some of the audience behaved in the playhouse. 
As with Decker's other writings, there is, it is thought, quite a bit of truth at the heart of the satire. What follows are some extracts from the longer piece. He opens in a backhanded praise of the theatre. The theatre is your poet's exchange, upon which their muses, meeting, barter away that light commodity of words for a lighter wear than words, platitudes, and the breath of the great beast, which, like the threatenings of two cowards, vanish all into air. He then picks up on the term groundling for the standing audience, saying, when your groundling and your gallery commoner buys his sport by the penny. That statement corroborates other records which mention the basic entry price to the playhouse as one penny. This follows from the first use of the term groundling in Hamlet about a decade earlier. Then he speaks to the diversity of the audience. Since as then the place is so free in entertainment, allowing a stool as well to the farmer's son as to your Templar, that your stinkard has the selfsame liberty to be there in his tobacco fumes which your sweet courtier hath, and that your carman and tinker claim as strong a voice in their suffrage and sit to give judgment upon the play's life and death. Carman there is probably referring to someone who transported goods and the stinkard was a term synonymous with groundling. Tobacco had first made it to England from the New World some 40 years before Decker was writing, and the habit had taken hold amongst the population. Clearly, there was no prohibition against it in the playhouse. Decker then suggests how his misbehaving gallant might proceed. Whether, therefore, the gatherers of the public or private playhouse stand to receive the afternoon's rent, let our gallant, having paid it, presently advance himself up to the throne of the stage. I mean not the Lord's Room, which is now but the stage suburbs. No, these boxes, by the inquiry of custom, conspiracy of waiting women and gentlemen ushers, that there sweat together, and the covetousness of sharers, are contentably thrust into the rear, and smothered to the death in darkness, but on the very rushes where the comedy is to dance. You'll remember that the Lord's Room were the private galleries and most exclusive and expensive seating in the playhouse. They were probably used more for socialising than play-watching. But for the gallant, the man about town, this is about being seen, not to be tucked away out of sight. So the stage is the best place to be seated. For do but cast up a reckoning what large comings in are pursued up by sitting on the stage. First, a conspicuous eminence is gotten, by which means the best and most essential parts of a gallant, good clothes, a proportionable leg, white hand, the Persian lock, and a tolerable beard, are perfectly revealed. But with the seat on stage come some very tongue-in-cheek responsibilities. But by sitting on the stage you have a signed patent to engross the whole commodity of censure may lawfully presume to be a girder, and stand at the helm and steer the passage of the scenes. Yet no man shall once offer to hinder you from obtaining the title of an insolent, overweening coxcomb. By sitting on the stage, you may, without travelling for it, at the very next door, ask 
Whose play is it? And, by that quest of inquiry, the law warrants you to avoid much mistaking. If you know not ye author, you may rile against him, and, pre-adventure, so behave yourself that you may enforce the author to know you. But the rewards of the seat on stage can be great. By sitting on the stage, if you be a knight, you may happily get you a mistress, if a mere Fleet Street gentleman, a wife. By spreading your body on the stage, and by being a justice in examining of plays, you shall put yourself into such true sensual authority that some poet shall not dare to present his muse rudely upon your eyes, without having first unmasked her, rifled her, and discovered all her bare and most mystical parts, before you at a tavern, when you most knightly shall, for his pains, pay for both their suppers. As with the other satiric writings we have come across, those of Thomas Nash and Green and the like, we have to decide how much of this is exaggeration for effect and how much reflects genuine behaviours in the playhouse. The mercenary view of writers at the end there is surely for comic effect, for example, but, whatever the degree, it gives the impression of the playhouse being a lively place where the division between actor and audience and between stage and auditorium is far less divided than we have become used to today. Audiences, we can say, were disruptive and didn't sit in reverential silence, tutting at every crackling rapper or inappropriate whispered conversation mid-performance. If you were standing in the pit, crushed shoulder to shoulder with other Londoners on a busy day, the chances are that as you watched the play you commented on the action to your companions, not bothering to whisper. You were offered food and drink by sellers who wandered through the throng during the performance, and perhaps you were even offered other pleasures by ladies of lesser repute working the crowd. At moments, others would shout out, even if you were being restrained, either because of the tensions of the play or because of the action not moving swiftly enough. If you were near the back of the pit, you could probably hear clatter, the sound of eating and certainly the sound of drinking coming from the galleries. Gents were probably greeting each other from across the angles of the wooden O, while avoiding the sight of a groundling relieving himself in the dark recess against one of the huge supporting beams. It is no wonder that the acting style was large and bombastic. The actors not only had to fill the playhouse with the poet's words, but battle against all sorts of distractions from within the pit, the galleries and even the stage itself. However, we should also imagine moments where the crowd's attention was completely taken up by the action of the play that thoughtful soliloquies were listened to carefully and empathetic stillness was possible. Decker goes on to tell us about the patrons who could afford to acquire a seat on the stage itself, but his gallant is there for all the wrong reasons. By sitting on the stage, you may, with a small cost, purchase the dear acquaintance of the boys. Have a good stool for sixpence, at any time, know what particular part of any of the infants present. Get your match lighted, examine the play suit's lace, and perhaps win wages upon laying tis copper and so. And to conclude, whether you be a fool or a justice of the peace, a cuckold or a captain, a lord mayor's son or a doorcock, a knave or an undersheriff, of what stamp soever you be, current or counterfeit, the stage, like time, will bring you to most perfect light 
and lay you open. Neither are you to be hunted from thence, though the scarecrows in the yard hoot at you, hiss at you, spit at you, yea, throw dirt unto your teeth. Tis most gentlemanlike practice to endure all of this and to laugh at the silly animals. But if the rabble, with a full throat, cry, Away with the fool, you were worse than the madman to tarry by it. For the gentleman and the fool should never sit on the stage together. The mention of the play-suit's lace being of copper is interesting. Lace used to decorate clothes was very popular in Elizabethan and Jacobean eras, but very expensive due to the intricate nature of the hand-stitching required to make it. Lace often included the use of metal strands to strengthen and shape it, and the most expensive lace could be made entirely of gold strands. Copper was a much cheaper but effective option, and was often used in stage costumes to enhance their look and durability. The other reference you might need there is to a doorcock. That was a term used for a male jackdaw, and by this period had also come to mean a stupid person. So, the audience, it seems, was perfectly capable of arguing amongst themselves during a play, and it's easy to imagine that in the heat of summer, tempers could become frayed, and one heckle too many, even a disagreement about the quality of the play, could lead to a fight. This was a time when men could come into the theatre armed with a short sword or, most likely, a dagger. Not because they knew it would be needed, but because they always walked the city with such armaments. If this is an accurate picture, then it's easier to understand why the Privy Council and the magistrates were so concerned about the theatre gatherings, and the potential for trouble that they contained. But they did, on the whole, avoid closing theatres other than on public health grounds. No doubt that was used as a handy excuse at times and with some relief, but I think they also recognised that the playhouses were a release for the population as well. Entertainment that released a pressure valve and put colour into life away from the drudge of work. Decker's next passage is exaggeration, I assume, but perhaps reflects a habit of some to turn up late for the show. Here he suggests that it is a means of flaunting their presence in the playhouse. Present not yourself on the stage, especially at a new play, until the quaking prologue hath, by rubbing, got colour into his cheeks, and is ready to give the trumpets their cue, and he's upon the point of enter. For then it is time, as though you were one of the properties, or that you dropped out of ye hangings, to creep from behind the arras, with your three-footed stool. For if you should bestow your person upon the vulgar, with the belly of the house but half full, your apparel is quite eaten up, the fashion lost, and the proportion of your body in more danger to be devoured than if you were served up on the counter amongst the poultry. It shall crown you with rich commendation to laugh aloud in the midst of the most serious and saddest scene of the terriblest tragedy, and to let that clapper, your tongue, be tossed so high that all in the house may ring it. At first, all the eyes in the galleries will leave walking after the players and only follow you. The simplest dolt in the house snatches up your name, 
and when he meets you in the streets, or that you fall into his hands in the middle of the watch, his word shall be taken for you. He'll cry, he's such a gallant, as you pass. Secondly, you publish your temperature to the world, in that you seem not to resort thither to taste vain pleasures with a hungry appetite, but only, as a gentleman, to spend a foolish hour or two, because you can do nothing else. Thirdly, you mightily derelish the audience and disgrace the author. Marry, you take up, though it be at the worst hand, a strong opinion of your own judgment and enforce the poet to take pity on your weaknesses and, by some dedicated sonnet, to bring you into better paradise only to stop your mouth. Decker's satire is aimed at the young set, the men about town looking for entertainment, so his advice also covers how to spread your presence around amongst the groups of men and how to treat the boatmen who conveyed theatre-goers who could afford the ride to the theatre. Crossing the Thames in a small boat can never have been a pleasant experience, except on the calmest of days. But perhaps preferable to crossing the narrow and at times very crowded London Bridge, which with the added time of walking to the bridge and then back to the pleasure grounds on the opposite bank. The Thames is a difficult river to navigate even now with its big tidal range and associated complex currents. The river is more contained now and faster flowing than it was, but it was still a tricky crossing that required the skill of an experienced boatman and his wherry to get you across safely and dry. Some wharves meant that you could reach dry land very close to the Rose or the Globe, but others were further off, and once across the river, there were many attractions and distractions on the way to the playhouse. Decker continues, Before the play begins, fall to cards. You may win or lose, as fencers do in a prize, and bet one another by confederates, but share the money when you meet at supper. Notwithstanding, to gull the ragamuffins that stand aloof gaping at you, Throw the cards, having first torn four or five of them, round about the stage, just upon the third sound, as though you had lost. It skills not if the four knaves lie on their backs and outface the audience. There's none such fools as dare take exceptions to them, because ere the play goes off, better knaves than they will fall into the company. Again, there's a sense of not only boisterousness of the groups of young men gathering and having rather too much of a good time, but a risk, even danger, emanating from them. And that gets worse. Coming up in the next passage is a reference to bastinado, which was a form of punishment of all torture where the soles of the feet were beaten with a thin cane. The cruelty of the satire perhaps reflects the potential for cruelty in everyday life of the time. Now, sir, if the writer be a fellow that hath either epigrammed you, or hath had a flirt at your mistress, or hath brought either your feather, or your red beard, or your little legs and co on the stage, you shall disgrace him worse than by tossing him off in a blanket, or giving him the bastinado in the tavern, if in the middle of his play, be it pastoral or comedy, moral or tragedy, you rise with a screwed and discontented face from your stool to be gone. No matter whether the scenes be good or no, the better they are, the worse do you distaste them, and being on your feet sneak not only away like a coward, but salute all your gentle acquaintances, that are spied either on the rushes or on the stools about you, and draw what troop you can from the stage after you. 
The mimics are beholden to you for allowing them elbow room. Their poet cries, perhaps a pox go with you, but care not for that. There's no music without frets. Decker, it seems to me, is tacitly recognising the dilemma of the playwright and the actor, who rely on the pleasure of the audience, their praise and their money, of course, to make their living, and who has to play along with their foibles even when they do not truly appreciate their art. But it gets worse, for the ill-behaved gallant can be very disruptive if he dislikes the play. Marry, if either the company or indisposition of the weather bind you to sit it out, my counsel is that you are true pain ape. Take up a rush and tickle the earnest ears of your fellow gallants to make other fools fall to laughing. Mew at passionate speeches, blare at merry, find fault with the music, phew at the children's actions, whistle at the songs, and above all curse the sharers, that whereas the same day you had bestowed forty shillings on an embroidered felt and feather, scotch fashion, for your mistress in the court, or your punk in the city, Within two hours after, you encounter with the very same block on the stage, where the haberdasher swore to you the impression was extant but this morning. Perish the thought that an expensive gift that you brought your mistress should be seen as a stage costume, a fake. But, of course, this reflects badly on the gallant rather than on the actors. It is he who has been fooled by the merchant and now looks and feels stupid. And what does the gallant do after a visit to the playhouse? Well, there is, of course, only one place to go, and the Southwark streets gave you plenty of options. As Decker says, not as advice, but as a statement of fact. The next places that are filled after the playhouses be emptied are, or ought to be, taverns. Into a tavern, then, let us next march, where the brains of one hogshead might be beaten out to make up another. Decker draws an unfriendly picture. The unruly audience, the actors beholden to unappreciative audiences and battling against the catcalls, heckles and distractions of emboldened individuals, the avarice of the sharers. But, to reiterate, this is satire, and presumably picking out some of the worst behaviours and exaggerating them, but retaining a grain of truth. Perhaps also there is a hint of jealousy in the jibes at the sharers. Decker, as far as we know, was never a sharer in a company, but a writer for hire, paid for his work in the moment, but with no lasting financial interest in the performance. Perhaps he felt he was owed more. Our impression of him is of a man who made good earnings from his trade, through hard work and talent, but also a man who was profligate, or a bad manager of his money, or probably both. It seems that he was always close to penury. As for his stage work, he was a prolific collaborator with other playwrights. Of the 40 stage plays he's associated with, only eight or nine can be credited to him as solo works, and it's not unlikely that his hand remains undetected in others, and that he was involved with many that are now lost. The degree of work involved in each case is difficult to judge. Only six of his plays made it into printed editions, so the survival rate of his work was very low when compared to Shakespeare or Johnson. But by any standard, he was a hard-working, jobbing playwright whose skills were well utilised by Henslow and others.
Next time, we continue with Decker's story and look in more detail at his plays, including how he moved with the times under James I and became a contributor to that very Jacobean genre, the tragic comedy, which showed the diversity of his skills for writing in different genres and combining them, and often in association with, other playwrights. In the meantime, please join the Facebook page or group, or find the podcast on Instagram or Twitter to keep up to date with new episodes and other theatre-related things. You can find details of ways to support the podcast at the website, which is www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com, or through the links in the show notes. If you do feel able to help out with the costs of running the podcast, then please head over to Patreon, where you will find additional content for a small monthly fee or a one-off donation. You can also find details about that on the website. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 